Amen. Please be seated, everyone, and turn with me in the scripture to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, we'll be reading the first uh, 12 verses together of the Gospel according to Matthew. Last time uh, we considered together two of the, the names of the one who was to be born. Jesus, for he would save his people from their sin, and Emmanuel, uh, God with us. And so we left the first chapter with uh, Matthew's simple account of the birth of Jesus. You'll notice that Matthew does not give us a a detailed uh, account here as we have elsewhere, Uh, but he simply ends chapter one with the birth of Jesus uh, and his being given his name. And then we read in Matthew chapter 2 these words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that's Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can uh, sing your praises, that we can uh, join our hearts together in prayer, and that we can again, by your Spirit, uh, Lord, have your word before us, not only the word that Uh, was inspired and breathed out by you as you carried along your servants, the prophets and the apostles, to write what you would have written. But Lord, as we open that uh, book today and tonight again, uh, we know that your Holy Spirit reads with us its pages. And so, Lord, we pray that by that same Spirit, you would work that word within us tonight, that we might know it not only in our heads, but in our hearts and that in the week to come, we would live what we believe. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last time, uh, as we began our study of the, the Gospel of Matthew, we saw in the 
first chapter of Matthew that uh, it's clear that Jesus comes uh, from a long line of sinners. The Gospel of Matthew includes that genealogy of of Jesus that has some rogues in it, has some Gentiles in it. And um, so we saw clearly that uh, he came to uh, sinners to redeem sinners. We also saw that he is Emmanuel. He is God uh, with us, with his people, taking on human flesh. And we saw last time that the character of his birth, right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, is, is meant to uh, confront us as soon as we get into the New Testament with the, uh, that absolutely supernatural, uh, miraculous power of God. Uh, and we're also forced to reckon with that absolutely gracious and merciful purpose of God in the birth of Jesus. And that this is why he's come. He's come because you and I need to be saved. We need to be rescued uh, from our sin. This is why he's, he's come. And it should be striking to you, uh, as it is to me, that the very first scene that we have in Matthew, after the birth of Jesus, and after his announcement, uh, that, uh, announcement to Joseph that he would be named Jesus, he'd be the Savior, he is Emmanuel, God with us, the very first scene we have depicts a picture uh, of folks worshiping Jesus and worshiping Jesus, the King. After all, we read in the genealogy that Jesus is a son of David, a son of David, the king. And so one of the first scenes we see in Matthew's gospel is that he is a king worthy of our worship. So here's, here's our scenario. So first of all, we see here there is a search for the king. Uh, verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. There is a search for the king. Wise men from the east. And uh, you've heard many me uh, messages, I'm sure, at Christmas time on this, uh, on, this, on this passage. But it really is amazing how we know so little uh, about these wise men from the east. First of all, they are nameless men which is pretty incredible, you know, the first who come to, to worship Jesus. Surely these men must have been known, you know, whenever they got back to their country, whatever it is, uh, when they got home, they would have announced, you know, we've seen the king, you know, we've been some of the first to, to see the king. We followed the star and, and saw the king, you know, today they would have set up a, a YouTube channel, you know, and given you all the details so that everyone across the world would know they've seen the king. They'd start a daily blog, maybe they'd, in, uh, they'd ink a book deal, and maybe they'd call it Three Men and a Baby. They could have done that. Um, they could have started a t-shirt company or something like that, but uh, we don't, they are nameless men. They're also numberless. I did say three men and a baby, uh, but nowhere do we learn how many of these men there were. It's not we three kings of Orient are. Uh, we simply assume three because in this passage, verse 11, you'll notice that there are simply three gifts that are given to Jesus. But it could have been just as well two men giving three gifts. It could have been 30 men uh, giving three gifts uh, to uh, Jesus. Um, but there was definitely more than one, but they're numberless. They're also originless. The Bible says they're simply from the east, and when they return from seeing Jesus, they go, the Bible says, to their own country. It doesn't say they went back to 
Babylon or Persia or Sweden or India or China or Mongolia or Australia or New Zealand or something like that. They just go and come from a generic direction far away. And they are also occupationless. Um, they are wise men from the East. And in the history of the church, there's been this, well, who are these men? They weren't kings. Wise men, uh, some say, were they, uh, they're called magi. Uh, they're called uh, astrologers sometimes, maybe astronomers, philosophers. And so the ESV has the translation, wise men from the East. But we, we, we know fairly little. But what do we know? Which is more important, of course. What do we know is that, well, they weren't from around there. And uh, we also know that they were, they were foreigners. They were from a different country. They were, they were Gentiles from far away. So uh, there are Gentiles in the ancestry of Jesus, as we learned. And as soon as Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, men come, we're told, from a far country to worship Jesus as king of the Jews. So here's the thing, right at Jesus' birth, here is Matthew showing us the first fruits uh, of the life and ministry of Jesus before Jesus' ministry even really begins. Nations are coming to his light, not first of all Jews, uh, but Gentiles. And in fact, this of course is what the, uh, what the Old Testament prophesied exactly would, would happen. And so you remember the prophet Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 60, says this, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your uh, rising. You think of the, uh, the psalmist uh, in Psalm uh, 69, verse 28. This is what we, this is what we read there. Um, Psalm 69, Psalm 69? I think I have the wrong reference here. Uh, Psalm 68, verse 29. That's better. Um, no, that's not the right reference either. Well, how about Psalm 67 instead? Uh, we get this from the, uh, from the psalmist. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way uh, may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing uh, for joy. Just as the gospel of Matthew will end, you know, with a commission for the church to make disciples of all nations by going out, here the nations are drawn in right at Jesus' birth. So there's a search for the king uh, from those far away looking for the king. Now, of course, Herod, we learn, is also drawn uh, to Jesus. This Herod is known in history as Herod uh, the Great. His father was an Edomite. That means from the land of Edom. That means from the ancestry of Esau. But clearly, uh, Herod, even though he has that ancestry, he doesn't know his Bible, uh, and so he needs help in understanding some things here in this passage. And then verse 7, we read this, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him." And so Herod is also, the Bible says, searching for the king. And so he makes a profession of a common cause with these Gentiles who have come looking for Jesus. But Herod is a liar, uh, we find out. He only wants to search for and find Jesus 
to destroy him. That is, he wants to eliminate his competition. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, that is, that these men were coming because they were following a star to find the king of the Jews. When Herod the king heard this, verse 3, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was he troubled? Well, because Herod knew uh, that there can be really only one, there can be only one king. And so if you have people coming into your territory and they're saying, we're looking for the one who has been born uh, king of the Jews, uh, Herod is thinking to himself, well, wait a minute, I am the king. And that's why you'll notice in Matthew 2, that's fun to say Herod, but it's Herod the king. Herod the king, right? He is the one uh, in authority. So this birth of Jesus and some searching for him, uh, Herod is greatly troubled. But there can be only one king, and Herod was right about that, of course. Jesus himself would say, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot have two kings in your life. There cannot be two kings. can't be Herod the king and Jesus the king. There can really be only one king. Uh, you can't serve both God and money. One will fall before the other. Uh, that's the lesson, certainly, in the uh, book of Samuel when uh, the, folk, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of uh, into the temple of Dagon, and they're thinking, well, this will work just fine. You know, we'll take the, um, the symbol of authority, the God of the Israelites, and we'll just, we'll just add him into our little temple here, and everything will be, everything will be, will be honky-dory. And, uh, and so the Bible pictures that as no. <laughs> you know, right? Dagon falls. They set him up. <laughs> you know, Dagon falls again. Uh, you can't have two kings. You can't have two masters peacefully coexisting uh, in a temple, and, um, and Herod knew that. Something was, something was happening, and he's troubled. Uh, now, of course, the Roman world of Herod's day and, and our culture today is very happy uh, for you and I to add Jesus uh, to the American pantheon, you know, right up there with Washington and Jefferson, and uh, well, and we follow Jesus. Well, that's fine. You just bring your religion in. Hinduism, Muslim, whatever it is, you bring it into America, and we can have all these different masters, we can all these different authorities, all these different kings, that's just fine. But if you dare to say uh, that Jesus is the king, and the only king, that is a threat, you see, that's a threat to, it's a threat to Herod when he hears they've come searching for the king. And uh, it's a threat to us too, isn't it? It's a threat to our sense of being autonomous, right? That we are a law to ourselves. And so uh, we see in this passage that the search for the king creates trouble. Not just for Herod, uh, but in fact for all of Jerusalem, the Bible says. All the people of Jerusalem are troubled. Uh, Why would they be troubled? Well, maybe they're fearful of what this means, what Herod might do if he hears another king. Uh, troubled for what it might mean for them. You know, is this a rival king? Are we going to have to make some kind of, some kind of choice here? Um, Jesus does that, you see. Jesus comes as king and he troubles. He stirs up hearts. Uh, even the announcement that people are searching for him uh, causes trouble. No one, friends, no one is neutral uh, to Jesus. Oh, how we need to see 
need to see this. There's a search for a king, and uh, Herod himself and the people themselves, they're troubled. What does this mean? But no one will be neutral to Jesus, as we know through the Gospel of Matthew, but it begins even at his, at his birth. Uh, growing up in a Christian home, you know, I kind of miss this completely, this idea that um, you know, no one is neutral to Jesus, uh, that just his, his coming, even as, a, as he, and as a baby, even as a child, his very presence stirs up trouble, and certainly folks seeking him. But when I was growing up in the, the Christian home I grew up in, um, I thought, you know, till I was a late teenager that, you know, I was kind of in the car of my spiritual life, uh, just set solidly in neutral, you know, that I was just sitting in the car of my life uh, and uh, I was in neutral, not going anywhere, you know, not going anywhere bad, not going anywhere good, just kind of neutral, you know, sitting in, in neutral, waiting to make up my mind when it came to, to Jesus or the gospel. But Jesus, of course, said there are actually only two kinds of people, and they're going in two different directions. Those, he said, who are not with him are against him. Those not traveling toward the light in the scripture are traveling farther into the darkness. Or as uh, John said, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no neutrality when it comes to King Jesus. Just like no one can be uh, neutral towards the waves of the sea, you are either uh, with the waves of the sea uh, or you are against them. But there's no, there's no neutrality. Well, the search of the wise men ends. Uh, they find, we could readily better say they're, they're drawn to Jesus because of the star. What do they do when they find him? Well, they don't, uh, they're not distracted. They don't go on a shopping trip. Uh, they don't see themselves as tourists there in Bethlehem. They go straight to the house where Jesus was, over which the star came. They came, the Bible says, to the king to worship. Notice what the Bible says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That should sound familiar to you. We read that same kind of expression in the, in the first letter of, of Peter. It's this repetition of joy. They rejoiced with joy, and they rejoiced with exceeding joy uh, as they found Jesus. And going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They come to the king uh, to worship. They fell down and worshiped him. Now, there are many unanswered questions, of course, mysterious questions here uh, about these wise men, what they knew, why they came, and how is it that these men from far off, a distant country, know of this baby to be born? And, and how is it that they come and, 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 and they, they fall down and worship when they see him? There are these kind of mysterious uh, you know, questions in the Bible. And uh, I think, for instance, uh, the book of Hebrews, and uh, you ever heard of a man named Melchizedek? The Bible says this in Hebrews 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He, this Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And you say to yourself, what? What does that possibly mean? Who is this Melchizedek? And how is he a priest of God coming to Abraham? Where did he come from? How does he know God? You think of the book of Job that we just went through in our evening worship services. When we began that study right at the beginning, we noted that we don't, we don't really know exactly where Job fits. Job's not in the line of Abraham. We don't, he doesn't come through the line of Abraham. So how does he know God at all? What word has come to him? Clearly, he knows God. He loves God. He serves God. But how does he come to know him? And here, as we think about these wise men who come for the purpose uh, of worship, uh, we wonder how. Why do they travel this distance to bow before Jesus and worship him? What could they possibly have known? What word did they have? Who told them? Well, the Bible tells us the the instrumental means used in Matthew 2 refers to his star, right? Verse 2, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place uh, where the child was. And in the history of the church, there's been no lack again of ink spilled talking and theorizing of this, this star. Uh, I had a professor in, in college, Dr. Al Walters, who uh, wrote some kind of, um, uh, some kind of article uh, on, uh, on this star and doing a history of comets. Uh, was this star uh, a comet of some sort? Obviously, this star is not in place. Obviously, this star somehow moves. Was this somehow a comet of some sort uh, at the birth uh, of Jesus Christ? Uh, But this shouldn't really surprise us that somehow there is a celestial being, that there is a a star that is marking the birth of Christ. After all, the Bible tells us in other uh, places, of course, in Colossians 1, for instance, that the Bible says all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus, and in Jesus all things hold together. So the one who... Uh, the one who created the stars, the one who knows them by name, who sets the times and season, who commands the winds and waves, the storms and seas, also directs the course of the stars. And whatever possible so-called uh, natural explanation man might devise regarding this star, none of that explains why this star at this time, at this house, The Bible explains, God tells us, and that is enough for the believer. It was over the house where the child Jesus was. And these men rejoice and they fall down and worship. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about these men from afar whom we don't know much coming all this way to bow down to Jesus. These verses, says Ryle, teach us, listen to this. That it is not always those who have most religious privileges who give Christ most honor. 
we might, he says, have thought that the scribes, think about this, we might have thought that the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the first to hasten to Bethlehem on the slightest rumor that the Savior was born. After all, they knew it was going to be Bethlehem. But it was not so, said Ryle. A few unknown strangers from a distant land were the first, except the shepherds mentioned by Luke, to rejoice at his birth. The Bible says he came unto his own, his own received him not. What a mournful picture this is of human nature, says Ryle. How often, he says, the same kind of thing may be seen among ourselves. Uh Uh-oh, where's he going? How often, says Ryle, the very persons who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. There is only too much truth, he says in the old proverb. I never heard of this proverb. Apparently it was known in the 19th century. This proverb, said Ryle, the nearer the church, the further from God. What? Yeah, that's what he said. Proverb, I guess, late 19th century. The nearer the church, the further from God? What kind of proverb is that? But this is what he says. Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. There are many who from residence and convenience ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God and yet are always last. There are many who might well be expected to be last who are always first. Here's the thing. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that's Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah chapter 5. So the scribes and the Pharisees, these folks assembled, um, they knew the prophecy from Micah. So here come some Gentiles on the search for the king. And the question, of course, is why didn't the scribes and the Pharisees and those folks that Herod assembled, or even the folks in Jerusalem themselves when they heard the king was born, why didn't they get on their horse and get to Bethlehem? You see, is what Ryle is thinking about. Hmm. The same reason folks in American churches who wept and agonized and railed against the state for interfering with the authority of the church during COVID, oh, they got so upset. So saddened we couldn't come and gather in this place to hear the praises of God. The same reason that those same folks uh, today neglect the worship of God in America. How could we be so, you know, oh boy, there were so, there's people. How did the state dare to interfere with the authority of the church? And yet, when across our land, elders call God's people to worship as the church, they don't come. That seems strange that those who are so near to the means of grace are the ones who neglect them the most. Why didn't the scribes and the Pharisees and the folks in Jerusalem who heard of the king born in Bethlehem, go. No. 
No, they didn't. Ryle was right, you see. Ryle said their heads were better than their hearts. <laughs> um, that is, the Pharisees, they knew the Bible. They knew about Bethlehem being the place. And now they hear, king in Bethlehem, that's where we're going, but they stay home. You see, their heads were better than their hearts. This is why Jesus will tell uh, this parable later in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 21, 28, it goes like this. What do you think? What do you think? Man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two, said Jesus, did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first. And Jesus said to them this. Ooh, 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 ooh. Jesus said to them this, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Scribes and the Pharisees did not go to worship the king, but these wise men did. Why? Well, because true believers know that he is a king worthy of worship. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house. Now think about what they saw there. Going into the house, they saw the child. It's the child with Mary, his mother. And the Bible says they fell down and worshipped. Now Herod, of course, is a king unworthy of worship, as we will see next time. But actually, there, there, is, there is no other king worthy of worship. Perhaps this past week you heard of, of dear Queen Elizabeth II, 96 years old, celebrating this past week her platinum jubilee. That is, 70 years as queen of the United Kingdom. 70 years. United Kingdom and 14 Commonwealth realms. Everyone is celebrating around the globe this week in the UK, in New Zealand, Canada, Jamaica, the Bahamas. You could be celebrating too, except for that unpleasantness in 1776. So you are, um, you are missing out. But nonetheless, most folks are celebrating the Queen, and there are some worshipful fans of British royalty. And there are, of course, some who worship and bow before the Pope and kiss the Pope's ring. But the Bible says there is only one king worthy of worship. That is, as the wise men demonstrate, worthy of costly gifts that are worthy of a king. That's the point of these gifts. These are costly gifts worthy of a king. They give, uh, they give lavishly. They give what, co- what is expensive. They give, uh, the, they give the gifts that, that only a king deserves, you see. They give their best. 
They come not to get from Jesus, but they come to give. And it's a costly giving. How these worshipful wise men from afar ought to rebuke us, who, as Ryle said, are so near the means of grace all the time. Think about it. How far did these men travel to worship the king? Oh, the diligence. They would have had to stay on that road following that star. Think about what it, uh, what it costs them uh, in time and, and self-denial to make this trip to Jesus. Uh, think about uh, all that they, they gave of, of, of commitment to come and to be there. Why? Well, because the Bible says when they come there, they recognize that he is worthy. He is, he is worthy of it all. It's the kind of worthiness we see here right at the beginning of, of Jesus' life, that in the book of Revelation, it says all of us, all his people will recognize then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, says John in Revelation 5, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That is, no one is worthy. And I began, says John, to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That is, he is the king, he is the judge. And between the throne and the four living creatures, says John, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, Seven horns and seven eyes of perfection, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. Every Christian believer, you see, bowing down, worshiping, worthy, you see, worthy is the Lamb. And what did these wise men actually see that made them rejoice so exceedingly with great joy, made them fall down and worship and give their absolute best to the king? Well, this is the amazing thing. He was a child in his mother's lap, and he had done no miracles. Uh, he had done no teaching. They had not seen any great miraculous wonders from Jesus, and they didn't even have any good examples of religious leaders that they could follow in their worship of the king. All they had was Jesus and his mother. And the Bible says they believed, they rejoiced, they fell down, and they worshiped Jesus, the king. 
And friends, how much more, right? How much more have you and I seen that should lead you and I to fall down and worship the king? You've seen how worthy he is, right? You know this gospel. We're starting at the beginning, but you've read it many times. You know what Jesus will do. You know what Jesus will say. You know how Jesus will suffer. You know how Jesus will die. You know how Jesus will rise again. You know how Jesus will will ascend. You know how Jesus will pour out his spirit. You know what Jesus has said about his coming again. And you know where it's all going to end, falling down before him. Every tongue, every knee, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. Jesus Christ is Lord. You know all of that. And all these wise men from a faraway foreign Gentile country knew uh, was what the Lord had shown him through this star, that this Jesus was born king. And they came, and they bowed down, and they worshiped, you see. That's why we search for the king, because the king we know is the one who is worthy of all our worship. You've sung it before in our hymn, in the hymnal. Who is he? Who is he? Born in the stall. At his feet the shepherds fall, and at whose feet the wise men fall. Tis the Lord. Oh, wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him. Crown him, Lord of all. Let these, uh, let these wise men rebuke you tonight. Let, let, let these wise men rebuke me tonight. They had so little. They came from such a far place to come, bow down, and worship the king. The king of whom you know so much more. We are so near to the means of grace. May we not neglect what God has given us so wonderfully in his Son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can, Lord, relish and rejoice in the truths you've given to us. But Lord, as we see tonight, we, we do wonder, how could it be that these men who knew the Bible so well, who knew, in fact, that the Christ would be arising out of Bethlehem to be the ruler and and here they have the testimony of other men coming to say, well, we, we've seen the star and, he, and he's been born. And yet they don't go. They don't seek him out. And they do not fall down and worship. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have so many blessings. We have so much revelation. You have given us so many means of grace to know you and what you have done. And especially the Lord Jesus Christ. that We have in our scripture 66 books speaking of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, we come to worship from week to week to hear your word proclaimed. So, Lord, we pray that we would not stay where we are, but that we would go to him as well, that we would be found uh, at his feet, worshiping Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. May it be so for our good, and for your great glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.